Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring the most interesting conversations from around the media industry, and today we're speaking to a startup that launched in the middle of a pandemic. Forum.eu is a Berlin-based news website. It is part original reporting, part an aggregation of content from 24 news organisations in the UK, the US and around Europe. As the name would suggest, it's focused on fostering debate on big topics affecting Europe as a whole, and it was determined not to let language barriers prevent you from getting the very best hot takes. What makes it different is that every story it publishes on the website is available in six languages, even the aggregated ones. So, as part of those deals with publishers, it has an in-house team of bilingual editors in case you wanted to read The Telegraph in Greek or El Mundo in English. Joining me today is Paul Ostwald. He's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Forum.eu and we'll be talking about his rather unusual publishing model and how it operates as a team of 30 staff dotted around nine countries. Working remotely has been a constant conversation over the last 12 months. As a startup, Paul's team has had to get used to hiring, initiating and managing its staff from a distance and from day one, and we'll be finding out much more about that later on. But first, this. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk provides a jobs board with the latest opportunities from around the media industry. Our job of the week is a correspondent position for TRT World in Turkey. For this position and all the rest on our jobs board, head over to www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Paul, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for yourself at the moment? Um, well, thank you, first of all, for having me. And um, to answer your question, I think it's quite tough for everyone working in journalism right now, not just, um, you know, the, the pandemic unsettling all of us in a sort of emotional way and, and um, putting us in, in a situation where we're confronted with stories that we've never really followed on before. I think, um, you know, working in a company that's just launched within the pandemic, it's the, the main challenge for us is, is just a day to day question of how we organize our workflows. And, and that's just not been easy. You've, you've touched on the, on the big question of today is why would you launch a startup in the middle of a, of a pandemic? And we will come on to that for sure. But uh, let's start with talking about forum.eu. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about the editorial focus of the website? We are trying to not create a new journalistic product per se. What we're trying to do is take the great journalism that already exists in Europe and beyond Europe and put it on one platform where you can access it in your language. Um, so what we do is we work with partners such as El Mundo in Spain, the New York Times um, from the US, uh, Telegraph from UK, many others, 20, uh, 24 by now, and translate them into the, the best pieces from them on the real big questions that Europe tra- faces. We translate them into six languages, giving you the option to actually read them in your language um, every morning. But there's some original reporting as well done by your staff. Right. Well, we're, we're adding more and more pieces now. Um, we've introduced a line called um, From Originals, where we take uh, really strong pieces um, written by those, um, you know, we, we call them thought leaders, people who have a real impact on, on Europe's debates and translate them into six languages as well. And they are, uh, in some cases, published by our publishing partners as well. Yeah. So to be clear about this, you might take an article from The Telegraph and translate that into one of your six languages. Actually, into all six languages. All six languages. Yes, that's correct. Um, that's what we do. Yes. Um, it has to be an article that's actually, you know, that has European relevance because translating standard sort of 
news reports into six languages doesn't really make sense because they're usually available in every language. So yeah, yeah it's the big pieces, the think pieces, if you want to say so. Yeah. And you focus on like, I think it's five main uh, areas of coverage. Is that correct? Right. That's how we started out. We're now realizing that that might've been a bit too um, slim in a way. So we're changing a bit um, wow. to, yeah, to, to a bit wider topics. Right. I mean, I think we started off with these very grand uh, questions of, you know, where's Europe going to be 100 years after World War II? Um, these kind of very large questions. And we're now seeing the real interest is much more in, in, the, in the quick moving debates, such as, you know, vaccine passports, yes or no? Um, do we need a European army? Yes or no? Um, climate justice, how would it look like? What does it mean for companies, for, for people, for taxpayers, for everyone? So we're kind of shifting to those quick moving stories. Yeah, interesting. And you, the six languages, that's English, French, German, Polish, Spanish, and Greek, right? That is right, yes. Sometimes Portuguese, but that's rare, yes. And no, no Italian? Unfortunately not. We would love to have Italian. And I think um, a lot of Italians would like to have us in Italian. But um, the main obstacle for us, to be 100% honest, is we need uh, pu publishing partners in Italy. Mm -hmm. And so far, we have not been as, as lucky there as we have been elsewhere. What does a publishing partnership look like? How does that come to be? We... Um, sign a deal where we give a revenue share, usually of 20% to the publishers um, of our revenues. Um, plus what we do is obviously, um, you know, we take the articles and translate them for them. Um, they can use these articles, they can use the translations and we use them ourselves on our service in uh, building a brand for them where they haven't yet been. So we're not really cannibalizing their own market um, because say the Telegraph, if we translate it into Greek and publish it in Greek, the, the Telegraph doesn't have a Greek product um, but we're opening that door in a way interesting um the the kind of question i wanted to come on to is why have this mix of original and aggregation of news content what's what's really the thinking behind it particularly in this moment of time this kind of historic uh 12 months we've kind of had why we're trying to do it is on the one hand because we see there is a lot of great content already out there from the, the top publishers but there's usually gaps that we see on a European level that haven't been filled because, you know, um, the national papers write for national audiences. So, so their stories are usually very uh, focused on, on the, their reader group. We have a different group of readers. So we're trying to create, trying to get people to write about um, the sort of more European implications of all this. The, when we talk, um, when we talk vaccine passports, the, the, you know, the question for us as well is not just how does Germany deal with it? And what's, you know, what's the implications for the German government? But what, what is the real, you know, what's the data question behind this that Europe faces? So it's like, you know, we try and take it, elevate the content that's already in the national context onto a bigger European level by supplementing it with the originals. I understand that as if you're going to weigh into these really large topics, add something meaningful into them. Right. That's what we try and do. To be honest, we sit there sometimes, you know, we have an editorial call, which is part of, um, I think most editorial newsrooms and and we discuss the pieces that are out there and we sometimes come to points where we all wish for one piece where we have these discussions and we're trying to find this one piece that does something you know meaningful for the discussion and, and sometimes we just can't find it and then yeah. that's a perfect moment to ask someone to write it for us what's the, what's the best example you can think of well actually currently um right now we we are, you know we have this discussion in the newsroom on um lgbtq free zones in, in some Eastern European countries and then the EU declaring the EU as a whole as an LGBT uh, friendly zone. Um, a huge discussion that's now ongoing and we, we will have um, an activist and journalist from Poland um, who co-drafted this paper on, on the LGBT friendly um, 
you know, Europe um, agenda, you know, he's going to write for us a piece. And, and this is really important because usually these things would end up in sort of in news reports. It, it would say something like, you know, oh, uh, EU declares this and that, and then there's a bit of a wrap up and that's it. But if we can get someone who, who's been, you know, really central in writing this thing, plus also in, on an issue that's so contested, um, getting him to write for us and really elaborating on the idea, I think is really, is really great. And um, that's something that we didn't find anywhere else. No, makes complete sense. And, and, and it's a great example. Forgive me for asking this question, Paul, but how much did Brexit play a part in the, in the formulation of this website? Now, you know, I lived in the UK and uh, well, well, we came up with the idea of forum. So it, it was a huge um, part of, of the genesis of the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, not not only in the sense of saying, oh, you know, bloody birds leaving us and we need to, you know, strengthen our discourse or anything like that. But I was in London during Brexit reporting, actually, and um, and realized that there's so much that hasn't been discussed at a European level. And this includes the UK. It was one of the really one of the stepping stones to say we need a common space to have discussions, because otherwise these public spheres, if you want to think of them in these ther theoretical terms, would just drift apart a bit. But then on a more practical side, of course, it was it was not easy because. Um, a, we had um, British publishers um, who um, weren't quite sure they want to work with a project that is pro-European in the widest sense. Um, I mean, then on the other end, we have the Telegraph. There was quite clear tendency towards Brexit in, in the editorial stance. And that obviously caused a bit of friction with other publishers who said, hey, you know, I don't want my content to be next to the Telegraph. To be honest, the Telegraph obviously still is such a recognized and, and well-established brand, so it's fine. It's not really brand damaging. But then, you know, it's, it still is a bit of a question. Um, if your brand is so strongly pro-European and pro-EU, do you want to be next to the Telegraph? That was, but yeah, we managed to convince everyone that that was a great idea, nonetheless. Prior to 2020, Forum.eu had a Medium account and was doing some podcasting as well, but nothing too official. A new website in July signaled the formal launch of the business. As it is with ideas that you kind of bounce them around quite a lot and everyone's doing something else. One of my co-founders actually had a baby um, in, in that time. So there was obviously a different agenda. Um, you know, his day looked different than mine. I was still um, at university. My other co-founders were still working. So it was this situation where we all had this idea and we'd sort of played around with it, but we hadn't committed to it full time. And then um, there was a point, I think, around May last year where we said, OK, you know what, let's do it seriously and let's sit down and, and build up this business. And then we really launched the website um, at the end of last year and, and pushed hard uh, yeah. beginning of this year. What kind of financial backing did you need to launch? Um, we needed um, backing that would at least carry us through the first year, year and a half. Um, 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 runway is probably the, the startup term for it, but the sort of outlook that we have at least a year and a year and a half, um, which we uh, secured from one of my co-founders um, who invested through his, um, Nicolas van Tyson, through his VC, um, Bonum Ventures, which is a you know impact-driven uh, VC, really focusing on businesses that try and have a social impact while also still um, building a business, which is something that's interesting enough. It's a whole lot, you know, whole different topic, but there's, there's, it's not quite common, especially in Germany. The idea of bringing together social impact and profit is kind of hmm, suspicious, to say the least. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But venture capital is, is what, what you're saying is that's how you got the ball moving. Okay. So over the last 12 months, you must have recruited quite a lot as well to build your team up. What's the size of your editorial staff now? 
Um, on the editorial side, we're about 15 to 16, um, I'd say. But, and then there's another second layer, which is the business and the tech and, and the sort of wider team. That's that's another 15, 16. So yeah. ranging around 30 by now. What was it like recruiting in the middle of a pandemic? So I, I never recruited before that, um, which sort of means I'm like, I don't know, uh, digital recruiting native. We try to work um, with a lot of layers of assessment. Um, to just really give people a the chance to, you know, work over their first impressions, the first impressions they'd left, um, to really give them the opportunity to show the whole range of their their skills. So we really did like four or five stages in some interview processes. Really rigorous. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, and and also like giving everyone the chance to to stay in for longer, if um, you know, to show that they had more than they could show in a first uh, Zoom interview that, you know, broke off in the middle and then was reinstated on, on Google Meet and whatever. So it's it's sort of, we sort of trying to build this longer, uh, if you want to say so, journey for, for an applicant just to make sure that we really see more of them. Um, and we try and obviously, uh, we tro- the ones who are in Berlin, we try to at least see on a distance beforehand, um, which is also a challenge. But yeah, I think it's also... Um, just to say that as well, it's been interesting to see that certain countries are much more used to remote hiring hmm. um, than others, I would say. So there's there's definitely, I mean, this is just my personal impression, no, date, no data for this, Jacob, but um, <laughs> I, I have a sense that um, countries like um, Serbia, if you look at um, countries like Spain, I think, um, where, where there's not a lot of jobs within the country necessarily, especially for journalists, a lot of them are used to working um, to, to working in a remote setting. Whereas if you're in Germany um, or France, uh, I think this, this, the situation is different, or UK, um, because there's just you're just used to local applications because there's a there's a big local market. So it wasn't as much of a shock, and it wasn't that uncomfortable for some people then. No, I hope it wasn't. <laughs> from, from our side, uh, I think it wasn't, and. I'm, I think we all grew, you know, into it in a way. I remember the first ones I was trying, I was quite, the first interviews I was quite like, all right, let's get started. And then by interview two, you start trying to understand the first 10 minutes of the interview, what someone's situation is, um, where they currently are, and all these kind of things that you kind of yeah. develop a bit over time. Because you must be looking for cultural fits for, for the company, right? right? But you're also yeah. trying to pair people together to work together who may have never met before. How did you tackle that problem? Plus, just to add, you know, the third layer is, is we're an early stage startup. So there's just a high level of fluctuation because some people come in with different expectations and right. when they come in, the jobs changed. So bring that all together, the cultural fit, um, the f- team fit, and then and then the sort of, if you want to say so, timing fit in the company. Because a lot of journalists, I think, are very open to try new stuff. But the, the nature of what we do and things moving quickly and things being renamed and things, you know, shifting quickly. There's, there's sometimes a bit of a, I think, uh, reluctance um, to, you know, just move quickly on these things, um, which is fine. And I think it's, it's super helpful for the company and the team we have is, is very comfortable with changes. Um, but I did realize that in the hiring process. Yeah. And that's, that's tricky in a digital kind of setting, trying to make all of these rapid decisions. It can get absolutely quite difficult. Yeah. How have you managed that challenge? Um, I think we've tried to keep transparency as sort of the top, I don't want to say value because it sounds a bit sort of, uh, you know, PR speech, but, but <laughs> honestly, I think the, the one thing we try to do is 
be as transparent about decisions and why we do something uh, to everyone. Because the, the the worst thing that I think can happen in this remote culture setting is is the sort of information asymmetry. You have some people who know what's going on, and then you have a whole bunch of people who are just being informed that from tomorrow on something is completely different. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think that that is why we've tried to just be as transparent as possible. Obviously, not on everything because that's that's not helpful either. But uh, you know, just to try and make sure that we really make use of all communication channels we have to get everyone on the same page. What does that, what does that look like? I'm just curious at this stage. Um, a lot of calls, which some people complain about <laughs> because they think calls are a pain. I think some calls can be um, obstructive rather than constructive, but um, we try and have calls, uh, editorial calls, where we have an open space for everyone to ask questions. Um, we have an, I have an open calendar in the sense that everyone can book themselves in if they have questions anonymously. Um, we try and send out an update on, we use Slack, so general channels, editorial channels, everything as regularly as possible. And we also um, have a Friday wrap up that's really elaborate, um, um, which, you know, is almost worthy to be printed by now. It's, it really, and I don't, I don't write it, my colleague writes it and it's amazing how it really gives you the overview of everything that's happening. You have a meeting and then you have the minutes to go with it, to go through everything you've discussed. Right. And I think I, I try and so that's the sort of more the formal level, but on a personal level, I try and actually be pretty transparent also about frustrations and mm -hmm. points where I wish things would be different. Um, and I think the team by now feels like they are really getting the real story of what's going on. They don't get the sort of, hey, guys, you know, it's really great from tomorrow. We'll be doing everything else, but, you know, something completely different. But, you know, it's cool to do new stuff. Um, I try and avoid that as much as possible and just be plain when there's just stuff that doesn't really work. Yeah. yeah, it seems to me what you're saying is there's a there's a range of options where people can communicate what they think. You can, they can go to you directly and, and in a way that isn't visible to other people, or they can do it as a group, and that's very intentional. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, in terms of actually getting, like initiating people into the company, embedding them in, into that company culture, what kind of strategies did you put in place? There's an HR onboarding with um, the, the, the HR team and my uh, fantastic colleague, our COO, uh, Nina, who really, you know, gives everyone the full debrief of what we are as a company, where we're going, all these kind of things, just a real rundown of everything. Then I do an onboarding as well, coming from the more editorial side and um, trying to build that personal relationship from the beginning. Um, and then a lot of it is on Slack, uh, you know, getting everyone into the new channels and and there's a bit a few rituals that come with it um we you know we, we work in, with editors in six languages um so every morning everyone says good morning in six languages and we have the same thing for people who are onboarded um so these kind of rituals i think they seem well benign and, and sort of irrelevant but they they actually have a big impact because i think they mimic or replace a lot of human interaction that's really important and yeah. And then, I mean, there's, there's more to the onboarding in, in terms of, you know, getting everyone sorted with a tech stack that is really important. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, nothing, nothing like crazy. We, I, I know that there are some companies who have crazy onboarding rituals and uh, I, we try and just not do that too much. Another big conversation throughout this pandemic has also been the mental health of reporters who are isolated from the newsroom. We have heard so many times that burnout, stress and anxiety have been real issues that journalists have faced during this time. So too do we come back to this idea of setting expectations from day one, letting new hires know 
what support is available from the beginning and where to go. Paul, as someone who has been hiring throughout this time, has had the perfect chance to put some of these ideas into practice. He says that although Forum.eu has not perfected the onboarding process in this regard, the company is thinking hard about this topic and will look to increase their offering in the near future. I mean, what we try and do is from the beginning is, is to clarify who to speak to. Um, A, for, um, for all issues relating to mental health and, and um, for support. So there's, there's someone in the company there for support. Um, there's also a sort of clear confident, confidentiality um, a debrief that we give everyone who, you know, if you want to speak to someone on, on a confidential level about other issues, that's, that's what we try and do. Um, we try and create those you know, spaces to have those conversations. Um, and then there's there's sort of regular check-ins that we try and do. And I think that that isn't um, enough. And I mean, what we've also been trying to do is is check in on people um, who actually had um, COVID, who were affected directly by it in the families and, and so forth. And, and try and support as much as we can also with local authorities that we try and, you know, get people... Um, the permissions to to move if they need to move around this, because sometimes you need an employee's um, permission so forth so we try and be as quick on those things as we can and, and as supportive as possible um, but we don't yet have someone in the company who's full-time on this issue and i think um it, it's probably yeah very high up on the list because um it is a huge issue and it's and it's affecting everyone i think it's overlooked easily i think on a day-to-day -day level but it makes it all all the more important to have those very real check-ins, those those rituals that might seem, as you say, uh, a bit uh, tedious from the beginning, yeah. but they are quite important. It's also quite incumbent on leaders to be paying attention to this at the moment. Right. I would 100% agree. And I, I personally try and check in with people and, and try and have calls. And if they are in Berlin, and I try and meet up and... Um, because you can legally go for a walk. So we, you know, I try and go for walks um, with people that are here. Um, so that's, I, I, yeah, we, I think we all have to do that. And I think it's very easy to overlook that impact when, you, when you're just communicating through Zoom. And um, yeah. on the other hand, you don't want to presume too much because you also have to be very careful, um, you know, how, how you approach the topic in the sense that you don't want to force that conversation on someone who, who doesn't want to have it with you. Right. I think one, one thing is accepting that you're not the right person to some extent. Um, I think there's there's a lot of good intentions sometimes to, you know, to get people to talk about how they're feeling and, and this kind of. But, you know, um, I have a bit of training on the side, but not a not a formal or, or, you know, sort of education. And I, I might not be the right person to have these conversations in every case. And I think it's really hard to find out when you when you should talk to someone and when you should not. Um, I, th I think you, like a lot of people, accept that maybe we don't have all the answers now, but as long as we're evolving yeah. and, and putting things in place, that's at yeah. least we're moving closer to a solution. Yeah. You've got um, a number of reporters with you in Berlin, but you've also got them dotted in around yeah. eight or nine countries. What does that editorial workflow actually look like in practice? Because I imagine that's it's not that you've got one part of the website that's in Polish, it's one part in English. Every single story gets uh, translated. Yeah. So how does that work? It is a lot of work and it's, it's um, I think we've really honed in on the process in the last uh, eight months. What we have is a, um, an afternoon call. So we start, our day starts at 4.30 PM in a way. So we, we try, that's when we get together for quite long, uh, sometimes up to an hour call 
Um, so each uh, editor, say our colleague in Greece or colleague in Spain, will select the, the two, three top stories um, from their partners. Then we go through them. We select a list of, of the, the, the top stories that we want, somewhere between um, somewhere between zero and seven, to be honest. There are some days where there's just sometimes it's it's because there's an ho- there's a holiday or there's you know there's there's reasons for it. Slow news day, perhaps. <laughs> oh yeah, there's some days, or there's or there's some issue that is so so present, but no one has been able to write a really good analysis. So it's all just news reports. Um, I think early days COVID, this was a problem. Uh, you had like the news reports that everyone would have, so there's no real purpose in translating it. You're, you're you're telling me there are it's acceptable to put no stories out if there's nothing to add to it. I will do that. Yes. Amazing. Uh, uh, sorry, I think I interrupted you. So where did you get up to in your in your explanation of how the the, the editorial process works? Absolutely. So you know when we know how many pieces we've pitched, uh, we've we've taken, and also when we have the approximate lengths, we can plan the day ahead, and then in the morning at eight a.m. we start um, with. All of the articles, um, putting them through our uh, custom CMS into English, into the the base version, if you want to say so. This obviously is easier if the text is already in English, and then uh, and then from English, our team of editors picks it up and translates it into these other, into their languages, um, mm. so that someone, say from Germany, in the morning will translate the German piece into English and then move on to translate another piece that was originally Polish from English into German. So that's the... so, so English is always the first port of call and then it goes out into the other languages. Yes, hmm. simply because we cannot have, if you think, you know, so we tried in the beginning, but having um, bilingual editors for every language match will, you know, mean we need a huge team. Um, yeah. Because you'd need someone who speaks, uh, I don't know, Greek and Spanish and someone who speaks Greek and Polish. And, you know, then then that's just, yeah quite a few of them are actually quite uh, quite good in other languages but but usually if you speak english and your language uh, well enough then you can do the two steps um sort of translating into english and from english mm-hmm, mm-hmm. perfect that's so interesting uh, i i really wanted to ask you about that the other area where editing can get quite tricky is when it goes into multimedia formats video and podcasts mm-hmm. i know there's not much on the website about that but are you thinking about how to make those systems work in a more multimedia way? Yeah, day and night, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> day and night. It is a huge topic, of course. I mean, uh, we know we've picked a format that is um, not the easiest to access. If you look at the trends of media, uh, long format journalism is not necessarily the, the number one. Um, so, I, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely um, a perspective to look at, at audio and to look at uh, video. As you say, the the language question here is big. I am confident that we will actually put out um, audio versions of our articles in the next two months. Um, not of all articles and not in all languages, but we'll give it a go with um, and probably start it off in uh, a few languages and then add consecutively more languages. Um, it's also, to be honest, so the video uh, part is harder and we try and stay out of it a bit currently, but it's also a big question for events. Uh, because you, you, it's really hard to have events in six languages, so you can subtitle them, um, or you just go for it and say, "Listen, you know, there's there's an added value for having this conversation just in Polish with someone, you know." Yeah. So we're still experimenting with that. So if you if you come across great ideas, or you know, just shoot me a message, I'd be super interested. I will do. No, cool. But uh, you've definitely got your hands full because you're not just a team of journalists; you're a team of translators, yes. and that's you know a different skill set entirely. Um, Thinking about my last couple of questions mm-hmm. here, Paul, as you work across a number of different 
uh, countries, you've got a team who have experiences in different journalistic cultures. One thing we find is that journalistic cultures are different across Europe. Mm -hmm. the, the recent example we found is, for example, whether it's acceptable to let your interviewee see a story before it's published. Now, in Germany, where you are, and I think in Switzerland as well, that's quite common practice. Here in the UK, that's pretty much verboten, right? It's forbidden. And so um, is there any kind of uniform editorial standard across the website or how do you kind of think about this topic? It is a great question. And it's it's usually a big topic in our uh, 4 p.m., 4.30 call, um, simply because, as you say, we work with journalists who might not even know what the sort of unwritten or written rules of journalism are in different countries. Um, we have the English um, standard because it's sort of our central node. We try and uh, we have a you know a, a big um, style guide that's based on English, but um, every language itself has its own uh, style guide. So every uh, editor really has their own style guide. And on these journalistic questions, it is to be honest a day-to-day -day decision that we have to make. Um, what we think, you know, at the end, it's, it has to be good journalism. So I have no problem with an interview that's been signed off by say the the interviewee um sort of german style uh, signed off uh, if if the content is is strong um on the other hand you have these interviews that have not been signed off by interviewees but that are so tame that you know it doesn't really it doesn't make a difference so i think for me it's it's and for all of us it's about the the quality of the content but and then maybe that's more of a footnote but we are uh, by law a german company and german uh, press laws are much stricter than british press laws for example so um, there's stuff that we cannot legally publish, which I also don't want to publish. Um, but this is particularly with, um, to be a bit more concrete here, uh, we had this issue with an article from Poland, which um, had um, as its sort of as its headline, uh, Deutschland über alles, um, commenting on EU, you know, Germany sort of taking a predominant role in the EU, um, which, you know, sort of, it means Germany over everything, but it's also the first line of the of the Nazi national anthem. And this, there's just a legal question in Germany whether you can publish that by law, quite simply. Um, you probably could. I don't want to do it for uh, political reasons, but but also um, for journalistic reasons. I don't think that in a German, this is something that a German audience uh, would, you know, find in any way, you know, useful to to understand the the, the text. So um, that is a really hard decision. What do you do with that? It seems that it's case by case, quite ad hoc as they arise kind of thing. And, but also at the same time, you're thinking about the audience themselves. How would they interpret that? And you've got a very wide audience as well. So does that, that goes into the equation too? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think there's, there's not that many people, unfortunately, I think the number's growing, but there's not that many, there are not that many who uh, want to read El Mundo in English or the Greek Daily in Spanish. It's it is just a slim subset. To, to, um, that's kind of what we started with. We'll expand later, but that also means that um, they want really. We're really realizing now with the readings uh, habits on our side, they want in depth. They want um, quite sort of critical um, stuff that's really uh, confrontative and investigative journalism. Um, so less of the news reports, uh, not, not, you know, no news wires, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we try and keep that in mind, um, as much as we can. Awesome. Last question to you, Paul, what mm -hmm. will be the first thing you do life after lockdown with your team? Uh, we will meet up. Um, they don't know yet. I think some of them know talking about information asymmetries. Uh, oh, I've let, uh you've let it slip now. <laughs> yes, but it's okay. 
so what we try and do is is get everyone together um in in a place near berlin and really just spend a whole weekend or more together um, i'm trying to get everyone to bring their local favorite alcoholic or non-alcoholic drink um nice uzo from greece uh you know uh there's quite a few good ones out there um so get everyone together and actually uh just have a whiteboard and throw everything on the wall that's been uh that's been a pain in the last six months that's been good and just really um sit down and and take stock because i think you kind of lose track of everything that's happening um when you're when you're in these sort of in the day-to-day -day wheel and i think that's that would be a good moment to actually recap you'll have to let me know what what uh what appears on the whiteboard paul i will definitely <laughs> paul it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast thanks so much for your time and insights thank you very much for having me thank you Great to speak to Paul there, and there's so much to think about when it comes to remote working as a team. A takeaway would be small things make a big difference. Check in often, maybe say hello in your colleague's native language, avoid information asymmetry by keeping people up to speed on relevant decisions, be flexible with remote job interviews as gauging someone's character over Zoom is not that simple, and make new staff aware of what support channels are available from the offset. If you like what you heard today, you can check out all our other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on the show, drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.